This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hey everyone, my name is Christian and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. We are essentially a music analysis podcast that takes deep dives into albums across history to figure out why they are the way they are. Their order, their sound, their lyrics, their in order to provide you with a new perspective on either your favorite music or give you the desire to maybe try something you never would have tried otherwise, a new appreciation for something new to you. Now, obviously, this this couldn't exist without other people. I may make the episodes, but I'm not the only one involved. For one, we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the top source for all entertainment-related podcasts, especially ones about music. Housing dozens of shows that range from broad to niche, you're sure to find something you love in their catalog, besides Throughline, of course. And secondly, we absolutely would not exist were it not for our parent podcast, co-hosted by my parent, Matthew, and his friend Kyle, Audio Judo. Your podcast of music discovery, it seeks to invite you into new and old albums through the exploration of their history, their significance, their musicality, and their specific connection to the hosts. It's a wonderful mix of humor, fact, and interpretation, and you can find it wherever you podcast. Today on Throughline, we're taking on a bit of an industry giant, someone who actively takes up space in many people's heads and ears and has garnered a pretty divisive reputation as a result. You either love her or hate her, this episode we're covering the ever-present megastar Taylor Swift, and more specifically her latest album released 2022, Midnight's. This is such an interesting one to cover because I've really never been much of a regular Taylor Swift listener. Outside of the hits, I'm as green as you can be. So it's been fascinating to uncover this incredibly prolific backlog of not quite so hits 
and find what mysteries are there to unravel. Midnight's itself is a bit of a surprise, both to the market and to her fans. Following off the back of her two folk cult hits, Folklore and Evermore, both released deep into COVID's worst days, this shot out like a cannon, seeming to break every conceivable album record at the same time. All of its songs completely stampeded through the Billboard Top 100, scoring scoring all top 10 spots at one point, the first album to do so. The album as a whole had the most single-day streams at all time on Spotify, with 186 million streams, and expanding out to well over 200 million through the rest of her discography on the same day. A new venture of sound, it was also a critical success, with many praising its instrumentation and restrained style, a hallmark of Jack Antonoff-produced albums, as well as how honest and vulnerable her lyrics were, commenting on everything from anxiety to self-confidence in ways that were able to resonate with a large audience. It scored the number one spot, obviously, in more countries than I could reasonably list, we'll leave it at a staggering 28 countries, and has also already gone platinum in Australia, New Zealand, Norway, and the UK, and two times platinum in the US and Canada. And it's only been out for like three months. There's even a huge bonus disc version of the album with seven more songs, which we absolutely did not have time to cover, but really shows how massive this release was. If you don't know who Taylor Swift is, though, well, frankly, you're lying. She is one of the best-selling musicians of all time, with 11 Grammys and dozens of other awards, including 92 Guinness World Records, which I can't really even comprehend, and also a weird statistic to put on Wikipedia. She's been making music for about 19 years, but really got her start with the smash hit Love Story off her album Fearless in 2008. More country pop in that time, she has since evolved over multiple genres and styles to become a powerhouse in the public household name level of popularity. With something in connection to her popping up in the news seemingly every month or two, it's very likely that as a result of this constant success and her willingness to engage in discourse about women empowerment and other political topics, including a high amount of philanthropy, she will be seen as an influential figure in music and beyond for decades to come. She has sold more than 200 million records and is the most streamed artist on Spotify of all time, which is just a mind-boggling piece of information considering some of the numbers we've thrown around in the past. And she's also a tour beast, having done, it seems like, almost a thousand shows in 18 years, which is like a concert every week for the last two decades, which all in all has earned likely billions of dollars in revenue through the years as the Reputation Tour itself grossed over 500 million. It's pretty staggering, all in all, and a surprising testament to how talented she truly is that she's able to be this successful and prolific, but continue to write songs at a pretty reasonable pace that don't seem to diminish in their pop quality, and sees her even, at least partially, reinvent her sound every new album. It will certainly be interesting to see how this progresses further as a musician as she gets older and the music industry continues to change. But one thing's for certain, She's as in demand now as she's ever been. And so, with all the stats out of the way and everything all tidied up, it's finally time to get into it. One of the longest episodes we've ever done, and one of the absolute most difficult albums I've ever had to analyze, let's stop a doing and start talking about this week's episode of Throughline, the album of the day, Taylor Swift's Midnight. At tea time. Exhausting, always rooting for the end to heal. 
It's a relationship album. It's about relationships. It's about Taylor Swift and her ex-boyfriends again. We can pack it up and go home, everyone. I've done it. I've solved it. All the Swifties out there with their theories could never. Sometimes it truly is that simple. If you were waiting for the theme song and a false ending, you probably haven't listened to the other episodes yet. We've done this joke before. It's a little bit old news. But what isn't old news is Midnight's, Taylor's brand new album following off the heels of Critical Darling's Folklore and Evermore. Or is it old news already? At the rate she's putting out albums, she's going to end up going against herself at the Grammys. Now, if you're against me here at the beginning, I will admit that the first section of this breakdown has so far been a bit of a letdown. A bit of a poor jab, however tongue-in-cheek it truly may have been. But the jab was less intended to be a direct shot toward Miss Swift, but rather a jab at my general ineptitude to cover this topic. As many know, often with rather dismissive criticism, Swifties are an entirely different breed of fan. The number of devoted fan accounts on Twitter is staggering, to say the least, and whenever new music is released, the fandom devours it and tears it apart with a level of conspiracy and detail orientation that you would see from cryptographers working for top-secret government agencies. This lyric is a reference to this song, which in turn calls attention to this part of this photoshoot which Taylor has said to mean this thing, which means that this lyric is actually about this ex-boyfriend who did this one thing to her in 2013. Now, if you're like me, this falls a little bit into the Pixar theory discourse, of which my personal opinion is that it's a bit of a silly thought experiment and nothing more. A fun game that brings people joy, it doesn't harm me, but is probably misinformed to think that it's actually intentional or planned. The problem with having that critical of a point of view, however, is that these theories aren't always incorrect. Having done some bare-bones research into the album to prep for discussing this section of the breakdown, and also not being able to avoid some of the pop-up information in the genius lyrics, and also not being able to avoid the voluminous discourse of the album on Twitter when it came out, it's coming more and more to my attention that Taylor herself feeds these theories. Now, with an extensive body of work behind her that she has had a massive influence in creating, she's now easily been documented to reference her own songs in each new album. Question, song 7 on this album, opens literally with what Genius, the lyrics website, calls an interpolation from Out of the Woods off of Swift's 1989 album, a song that apparently shares a thematic idea. Take a listen. It is somewhat common to hear musical motifs repeated across an album, but rarely does an artist self-reference beyond albums. All in all, this points to an album that likely works on a broader level than I'm fully equipped to handle at this time, pulling references from time periods I'm unfamiliar with, as this is the first Swift album I've ever listened to in its entirety. But I'm going to try anyway. And in fact, I may be in a unique position to explore the album from a point of isolation. Knowing very little about Taylor Swift in general, and having familiarity with really only her hits, and subsequently granting myself the ability to find themes or ideas in the album that would be harder for those too close to see. And what that really has unearthed is an incredibly complex album that functions as an interweaving of a few main structures and meaning, a contemplative of her own insecurities and flaws that punctuates an attempt to reconcile a current relationship against the damage from those of the past. Functionally, it really acts like a hero's journey in a way, but one that may or may not see Taylor Swift herself succeed in love in the end. You'll just have to listen to find out. Now, where's this coming from? Well, for one, it's hard to miss the numerous songs on the album that approach her past and her nature in a very raw and frankly intensely honest way. 
In many ways, Taylor Swift has never really been one to shy away from critically examining the hatred she seems to attract fairly regularly, often from publications that find it fit to expose her every move and tear it apart piece by piece to find a morsel of shock and awe. Now, there is a bit of a conversation to be had about the ramifications of being famous, as if this is something that just comes with the territory. And also, she's a multimillionaire, if not richer, so it's honestly not even that big of a deal. To which I'll say that unfair criticism is still unfair criticism. But back to the point, Song One already begins her quest of lambast against misogynistic comments about what she is and isn't good for, likely leveled at her pretty consistently, especially as she gets older. It's almost a bit startling to find such a stretch of conversation in the middle of what should be a fairly soft and fuzzy love song about new love, the first song on the album. And it's not just in one part on the song either, it's the chorus and the bridge. The bridge, the notorious section of twisting information, instead doubles down on the mixture of social commentary and blaséness, essentially wondering how this is still a topic of conversation after all of these years. We'll talk about this more in the track by track, but we're already beginning to see these fragments of reality, grounding the whole album. This grounding doesn't only come from the stark jabs against critics nor the exposing lyrics. This album also leans heavily into profanity. Taylor Swift. America's Southern Romance Pop Sweetheart. In Midnight's Alone, she more than doubles her total use of the word fuck across her entire catalog. Coming off two already fairly profanity-laden albums, this one completely ignores the playbook from before, exposing a version of the singer that all at once feels more authentic and possibly even a bit forced. Listen to a little bit of Snow on the Beach and notice how the song abruptly drops an F-bomb right in the middle of the chorus, a section that realistically feels like it doesn't need it. And it's like snow at the beach, weird but fucking This mixture of honesty and performance in and of itself is a bit of a complicated thought. How could these two coexist? forced and authentic. Well, luckily for us, that actually pivots our way into a bit of an exploration into how I derived that the album is about an examination of a current relationship through the lens of the failures or successes of past relationships, and furthermore, how that fits into the mold of a hero's journey. Now, no exploration of the hero's journey would be complete without an explanation of the plot device to begin with. Also called the monomyth, the hero's journey conceptualizes a specific character's narrative through a series of steps that sees the character be called to some great new, suffer through their adventure, and come out the other side stronger than before, the master of the known and unknown. Now, this seems like such a commonplace idea now, with every writer and wannabe citing the steps from memory. Is it telling that I had to look up the precise steps? But the seemingly tired and overplayed genre idea is actually relatively new in the public eye. Only popularized since the late 1900s, it's essentially a school of analysis for exploring literary or other medium, giving a bit of a framework from which to approach studying a piece of media. Characterized by steps, these ideas are abstract enough to be applicable to many works of fiction, and even real-world events, if you try hard enough. Now, it's possible that by saying this, I've given you the ammunition to 
rant and rave about this being a stretch. A pop album that tells a hero's journey? Preposterous, uncanny, inconceivable, really. But let's lay out the steps, and then let's jump into the track by track, and I think both you and I may be surprised about what exactly we uncover. The typical traditional journey follows, well, 8 to 17 steps. There's no real consensus. Even Dan Harmon, one of the creators of Community, has his own variant, the story circle. We're not going to get too deep into the weeds here, but I'll summarize. The main character is called to adventure or change by some greater force. Typically, there is a reluctance only convinced by a mentor or other figure to continue. They then travel into the unknown, where they are met with perils that test their mettle and make allies that resolve them. They reach the deepest part of their psyche, their greatest foe, and must overcome both. Upon which they are rewarded and then must contend with this new version of themselves before coming out on top, changed and often bettered. So that's the through line. Now it's time to convince you. Starting, of course, with song one, Lavender Haze. New love, a wonderful butterfly-dazzled embrace of light and color, a feeling of warmth and fuzziness. This gloaming-soaked feeling, a pink blush, is exactly that lavender haze that she describes, and is exactly how the song feels, a lush soundscape topped by her high, lilting falsetto. It's clear from the lyrics that this is a positive emotion for her, evident by the fact that she wants to stay. But the second most clear lyrical idea in the song is the unexpected nature of the emotion and her confused feelings on it. Far more lyrics in this song seem to deal with not really knowing how to handle these feelings or really understanding why it happened. The opening verse of the song has her, in the opening lyrics of a new love song, mention that you don't really read into my melancholia, already wrapping the identity of the relationship relationship into the feelings she believes would drive people away. Verse 2 goes on to cement that her opinion on the romance is fluid in a way, existing in a space of uncertainty between a fling and a marriage. And perhaps most importantly, the choruses are heavily smeared by her obsession with how such a relationship would be viewed, stating both that she wants to exist outside of that scrutiny, refusing to acknowledge it, damned if I do give a damn what people say, but still engaging with the criticism, lambasting the 1950s shit they want from me. A reference to the misogynistic remarks made from haters and critics about the fact that she's been dating on and off for the entire time she's been in the public eye. All of these ideas spiral together to form a portrait of someone fractured by outside expectations and critiqued enough to make it difficult for her to accept new love in its totality. Instead, content for now to hold it at arm's length and soak up the positive emotions that she synthesizes from it for as long as she can. And if you think I had forgotten about it, think again, because this song embodies two distinctly important steps from the hero's journey, the call to adventure and the refusal of the call. Here, right at the beginning, she is being tantalized with the possibility of a greater love, something worthwhile and something she seemingly has been nervous to or otherwise reluctant to embark down. And ultimately, she refuses to venture further, exemplified by the bridge of this song.
Get it off your chest, get it off my desk. Now, it's fairly obvious here that on the surface level, this bridge isn't actually her saying that she wants to refuse exploring the relationship further. I mean, she very specifically says, I just need this love spiral. But an important idea is brewed in this bridge that will carry through much of the album. There are many lyrical moments and even whole songs that function not just as one idea, but many, layered over each other with just enough abstract doubt as to be almost impossible possible to ascertain the true perspective. That's part of the reason why this episode is so long and why it was so difficult to write. Because just as much as it's easy to say that this bridge is about ignoring the haters and focusing on love, it could also be about ignoring the haters by presenting a false impression of a current relationship so she doesn't have to deal with it. As such, it's just as easy to then say that this section is instead her passively saying, yeah, just tell them I'm madly in love, just stop talking to me about it a blasé way to placate and redirect. And so we travel headlong, moving laterally, but not downwards yet, into Maroon. To start off on this song correctly, we need to call attention to a bit of an oxymoronic set of lyrical ideas. At the end of a pretty joyous first verse, an apparent continuation from Lavender Haze, we hear Taylor mention that I see you every day now. The relationship has seemingly progressed beyond a serotonin-rich departure into a full commitment. It's possible the honeymoon phase is still in full effect, possibly even more so now, but curiously, the chorus mentions the lips I used to call home. Okay, is this about her current relationship or an ex? Is she even in a relationship now? The opening of the first chorus also states that she chose you, and the opening to the second instead laments that she lost you, followed by the same lyrical content in chorus one. What this is actually doing is reinforcing the thematic idea we just brought up in the last song. That these lyrics and songs in their entirety work on multiple levels, and more specifically work as both event and explanation, describing how she feels about something current by describing how she felt about something in the past. Worried about the maturing of this relationship because of how a similar matured relationship fell apart some time ago. This is a trend that will continue throughout the album. The examination of the present through anecdotal evidence from the past. But for now, we need to step back into our exploration of the hero's journey. Just as much as Lavender Haze was a refusal to fall deeper into love, so too does this song refuse that call to adventure. In this case, that call into the adventure of a new passionate love, one that has the ability to grow into something that blossoms over a lifetime. But we do see elements of growth here, a possible crossing of the first threshold. The opening chorus feels like it has empty space, room where lyrics should belong, and it just so happens that those spots are filled by the recurring mention that it was maroon in the second chorus and beyond. To get a better understanding of what this means, it's important to describe what exactly maroon means here, and to do so, we need to introduce another character into the mix, Past Taylor. 
in some ways an ancestral tailor, and in some other more related ways a possible mentor or the supernatural entity of your past ghost selves. The use of the color maroon here feels intrinsically connected to, well, red. Not just the brighter, more intense shade, but also the name of one of Taylor's earlier albums and songs. A song about passionate, intense love. So what else does this seem like other than the darkening of that shade, adding complexity and texture to something she knew before, a more mature, yet difficult, love? So the first chorus sees her refuse to fall into that, but the second chorus and beyond, including the outro, see her repeating that her current love, examined through her past, informed by her ancestor self, is growing deeper. And so she passes past the first threshold, into the unknown, and immediately is greeted with her first trial in the bridge. By coming face to face honestly with her past, she is confronted by that previous relationship as it is permanently tied to her and is now haunting her, that legacy. And in the next song, Antihero, she turns that back around on herself as she faces her first real trial, full trial, a brutally honest retrospective on the aspects of her past and present personality that she feels critical of. Her haunting is now coming full force, as all of the people I've ghosted stand there in the room, apparitions of people she'd rather forget or is embarrassed to face. Mistakes made one way or another come for reckoning. It's hard not to look at the song and not see someone struggling with the shattering of an image of themselves that they've cultivated and convinced themselves of. Later in the song, she even mentions that a preceding stanza is a little bit of a narcissistic flex, when it's actually on the surface meant to be lamenting her loss of her friend circle, mentioned that she's gotten too big to hang out, as in she's too popular, too famous for these other regular people. Really quick aside, because I've seen a million people reference this and reference their confusion at it, but the sexy baby line is most likely a reference to the fact that she views a lot of her peers as beautiful, young, and innocent of drama and scandal in comparison to herself, who she subsequently describes as a monster, tall, lanky, and like a parasite, always coming back. It's definitely a weird way to it, but it makes the juxtaposition against herself as that rich, famous beast that much more pronounced. Circling back on the idea of her fortune, even the chorus mentioning tea time, well, likely a reference to her English boyfriend, mentioning tea time is somewhat reminiscent of a posh setting, especially as an American singer, basically admitting that, yeah, I'm wealthy, and also did I tell you that I'm rich and famous? What this comes down to is actually kind of an admission of stagnation, that she is this way, and that's really all she's arrived at so far. She can sing, I'm the problem, it's me, but the later lyrics in the chorus seem to literally reference her fan base having to navigate being her fans through all of her ups and downs, controversies and triumphs, and shrugging, saying that's just the way it is because at no point in the song does she ever resolve to change. Instead, she pointedly states that she'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror, continuing to make poor decisions, but never confronting herself. We do get one little admission of guilt and fault, however, through the way she handles the Bridge. Take a listen. It's me. I am the problem. It's me. It's me. I am the problem. It's me. It's me. 
everybody agrees, everybody agrees. The exasperated and defeated variation of the chorus idea sees an element of transparency, of vulnerability. It seems far less produced, cleaned up as if a raw take of this recording session, and gives a glimpse that she is starting to approach the subject more completely, rather than just performative. There is a desire for growth, but she still has a long way to go and many trials to best. And so, we step into the magical reality of the paranormal in Snow on the Beach, as she pivots away away from herself and begins her first trials regarding her current relationship. Passing by unbeknownst to me, life is emotionally abusive and time can't stop me quite like you did in my flight was awful. Thanks for asking, I'm unglued. Thanks to you and it's like snow. It's a fairly wondrous scene. It definitely feels like unfamiliar territory, like the realm of the unknown. The main idea of this song is the abstraction of the unexpected but positive, dreamlike nature of the sprouting and deepening of her relationship, described by an event that is rare and ironic. Weird, but fucking beautiful. The main idea of this song seems to function almost as an inversion of Maroon, in terms of its plot, talking about the past relationship negatively, then inverting and talking about the current relationship positively. Going from life is emotionally abusive, to my smile is like I won a contest. This is nowhere near a changed person, only baby steps, as there are still multiple references throughout to the things that she criticized in the last song. She uses the phrase, stars by the pocketful in the chorus, and while it would be possible to read this as a furthering of the dreamlike haze that the musicality and singer's timbre explore, it also seems to have ties to the fact that, being famous, she knows a lot of famous people, or stars, and keeps them in contacts on her phone in her pocket. But again, the bridge of this song explores another fully honest moment for her, explaining that the reason she is avoiding cementing what stage she is in her love, the reason she is heavily reluctant to move forward, is because she doesn't want to jinx it, doesn't even want to dare to wish it, finishing the section with the hanging question, can this be a real thing? Can it? From this section, the chorus picks up a bit of energy, almost sounding a bit brighter, the introduction into the section including a brief key change, like a moment of elation at the idea that her fears may be misguided, that this could be a real thing. That little lilt functionally boosts the mood, and as she and Lana Del Rey sing out the end, the repetition of its coming down does not feel dark or mysterious as the rest of the song was tending to play out, the imagery of a dark beach with the ocean waves likely gray and thundering. Instead, here, it finally wraps back around to the comfort evoked by the dreamlike haze, a soft coating of the world around rather than a suffocating current of weird. And that brief glimmer of hope leads us into You're On Your Own Kid, in pretty perfect fashion. Summer went away, still the yearning stays. I play it cool with the best of them. I wait patiently, he's gonna notice me. It's okay, we're the best of friends. Anyway. 
Already from the beginning, this song has a rosy sheen over it, her higher singing calling back pretty starkly to the earlier days of her career, the love story times. This childhood timbre carries over into the lyrics, being pretty blatant references to schoolyard crushes and friendships and spats, carrying over into the formative years of her adult life. Lyrics that evoke picking petals to tell if a boy likes her, to lines referencing summer flings and finding out that your biggest crush is your best friend. So then begins the beginning of her vision quest on that journey, the exploration of her psyche in more concrete based terms, getting down deep to the fundamental parts of her identity through a further examination of her past. And in doing so, she is actually talking to her past self, her younger self, in a switch of roles from Maroon. The choruses emphasize what she likely may have felt in those earlier years, a similar feeling that many adolescents and young adults encounter, a feeling of loneliness and isolation, that you're the only one who knows what you're feeling and what you're going through. Continuously, she sings that you're on your own, kid. You always have been. Not making a strong case of encouragement that she is going to feel better, to wind up together with someone or partnered in some way. But there's a very important change that grows out of the bridge and again recontextualizes the rest of the song. Rather than just referring to the events in the past in childhood terms, crushes and whatnot, she essentially starts an evisceration campaign on the criticisms she felt in those years and since, calling attention to unrealistic beauty expectations thrust on teenagers as she says she's starved my body like I'd be saved by a perfect kiss, or that the schoolyard razzes that grew into misogynistic criticism weren't ever all that funny to begin with. But finally, this turns around at the end of the bridge as she states that these losses were just stepping stones, that these moments are what define her now, so it's important to cherish them before flipping the choruses on their head with one additional line in the last one. You're on your own, kid. Yeah, you can face this. Suddenly, her loneliness is no longer loneliness, but instead the strength to be alone. The strength to trust herself and believe in herself and be her biggest supporter in the end. Now, in a space that has risen above merely self-deprecation, she has the strength to examine her previous relationships from a place of fairness in Midnight Rain. My boy was a montage love potion jumping off things in the ocean it broke his heart cause he was nice he was sunshine i was midnight he wanted a comfortable i wanted that pain he wanted a bird now, it's not perfect strength. This is something she is still growing into, shown obviously by the echo of her voice, strangled and strained by digital processing that sings the first few runs of the chorus before she finally gets her own voice and takes blame for the decline of a past love. But is she even really taking the blame here? Does she even need to? At the beginning of the song, she specifies that she broke his heart because he was nice, but by the end, she basically says that they're rarely thinking about each other, a passing memory that only becomes highlighted in the dark, the late nights where you lie in bed and your mind blindly fumbles through the racks of your memories, pulling up things lost that are only present when everything else is silent. Now the most interesting part of the song is the fact that this, essentially, is the namesake of the album. The song ends with the echoing repetition of the line, On Midnights Like This, a clear call out to the album name. 
and as the album begins gearing up for the ultimate confrontation with her descent into love completely, it's no surprise that this song refers to the story as a whole, being a specific section that sees her acknowledging the past, but no longer letting it hold her prisoner, the ending a very clear point toward the little attention she gives the past romance. This narrowing of her focus away from that which haunts her, something she mentions a bit here but more prominently in Maroon and Antihero, now obviously lessened, opens her up to accepting a bigger love in the present. And so, she finally brings the confrontation with her past relationships to its climax in question. This song, as many of the others before, seems to be a dual conversation between approaching her new relationship and comparing to her previous ones, explaining how excited she is with what's going on, while simultaneously explaining and foreshadowing how she believes it will go based on prior experience. The verses explore the ups and downs of this past comparison, changing from you painted all my nights a color I've searched for since to situations, circumstances, miscommunications that ended up devolving it until she confesses that that person has been with someone for all this time in the bridge, a lyrical segment that obviously shows that she harbors at least a little bit of ill will toward that information. But the thing to focus on in the song is not the continuous slicing of history, the hyperanalysis of everything that went wrong, but rather the confrontation in the choruses. This reads as the start of an argument, the way that the question itself is phrased, especially in the back half. Then what did you do? Did you leave a house in the middle of the night? Did you wish you'd put up more of a fight? When she said it was too much, do you wish you could still touch her? It's just a question. In a myriad of ways, it reads accusatory, with tonal complexity that could evoke someone accusing their partner of cheating, or a rendezvous past the breakup point where she is trying to get some closure. Why did you do this, and do you regret it? No pressure, it's just a question, but yes, actually, a lot of pressure. She is giving an ultimatum, essentially, that will determine whether or not she keeps giving this history space in her mind. And in a new twist, she channels that feeling of power, the control over the conversation and confrontation, into the final strength to cut ties to that past, to let herself feel the anger that she had denied herself over the situation that led to its demise, and breaks into the darkest song on the album, Vigilante Shit. Well, he was doing lines and crossing all of mine. Someone told his white collar crimes to the FBI. And I don't dress for villains or for innocents. This song is brooding, snake-like, a dark descent into the deep red anger associated with revenge, color not far off of maroon. But this revenge is more complicated than just specifically getting back at that relationship. It balloons out to cover all men who have wronged someone, not just herself and her friend in the first two verses. Dressing for revenge to make someone jealous, to proving that you're better off, to finally dressing as if you don't care. As the final section of the song doesn't even have her sing the lately I've been dressing for a revenge line in the first chorus of that section as the others do. She's exploring this fantasy of power and domination, giving herself the space 
space to separate from the wrongdoings she's experienced in the past as a bit of a final boss after finally confronting those past haunts. This is why the song exists in such a jarring tonal space. Nothing else on this album sounds like this because this is the ghost story. This is the exorcism, the removal of the haunt. This is where she slays the monster that was preventing her from moving on and falling deeper into love, the main climax of her hero's journey. And Bejeweled, then, is the final blow. The moment where she uses the confrontation from Question and the power from Vigilante shit to point out the flaws in the relationship and state that she's just not going to deal with it anymore. That she's going to go out and shine and be herself with or without him. And in this case, and as we know, it's about her ex, it seems to be without him. And by the way, I'm going out tonight. The sound of this song in particular is a crazy shift from the previous, just as much as the previous was a huge shift from the one before. These two songs exist in parallel worlds massive swings in her psyche and story. This one in particular is light and goofy, airy and joyful, almost gleefully silly. It almost seems like it approaches satire, but instead plays right on the edge, giving herself confidence without sounding pretentious, an aspect of her personality that she was critical of early on, that narcissism that she is now taking the piss out of a little bit. Best believe I'm still bejeweled, diamonds in my eyes, sapphire tears on my face, a diamond's gotta shine. The constant description of herself as precious stone allows her to give herself a sense of worth, a bit of self-enhancement, but with the added caveat that many of these gemstones start off life hidden within much larger, uglier rocks. Only through time and careful consideration do these stones get cut and molded into the gems we covet today. She's polished up real nice, and in each chorus specifies that she is telling people that she doesn't remember if she has a boyfriend. So, as she exists in the current space, she seems to actively be lifting herself and refusing to give her past any more thought. And in Labyrinth, she finally succeeds in the quest. beast has been vanquished, and she, at last, begins to admit that she's falling in love. A scary idea, punctuated by oh no's, but something that is now inevitable and happening. She repeats the pain of the disaster of that old relationship one more time as a death knell. The absolute last time she mentions it in the entire album, I'll be getting over you my whole life. Immediately following that, she again expresses her worry about the new love, in a bit of a stretched metaphor, comparing the swift fall into love to a quick elevator, worried that the faster it goes, the less time it will take and eventually need to stop or break. But the fact that this metaphor is almost weak is largely the point. She's at a loss for words. She doesn't know how to express what she's feeling, explained by the repetition of the lyrics in the chorus and another relatively pedestrian metaphor in comparing herself to a plane going down that her new love writes. The second verse again points out her difficulty in believing the situation, a call to the overthinking state that she's been in for much of the album, the labyrinth of her mind, but then reframes the breaking section of verse 
verse 1 to point out that he would break his back to make me break a smile. Another reaching attempt at wordplay. But it all comes full circle in the bridge when she admits her feelings to him and opens herself bare with her emotions and thoughts. She's no longer in the lavender haze, no longer just in the deeper stage of maroon, the playfulness of new love, the honeymoon stage. This is honesty and vulnerability, to which she just falls further in love. Her call to adventure, her reluctant acceptance, the many trials she faced, and her final confrontation with her past and the defeat of her ghosts lead her to this moment, the moment of accepting new love. And now, she has to return back home and come to grips with this new version of herself and the first step is dealing with the media idea of who she has been throughout history and the doubt and things she's experienced in new love in karma. Spider boy, king of these, weave your little webs of opacity, my pennies made your crown. Check me once, check me twice, don't you know that this song is a bop and skews more toward the realm of pop than a lot of the songs in this back half, the final end of the journey. Instead, it seems to play as a bit of a reprise for the confrontation of that final relationship, one last hurdle to clear of criticism and self-obsession and mistrust. But maybe not. Sure, it brings back the conversation of the other relationships, something we had thought we had vanquished by this point, but she's clearly on top of these conversations here, in a way that isn't as negative as vigilante shit. She's doing well for herself gaining back the confidence that had been lost and we had seen as shaky in Labyrinth. Just take a listen to the chorus. This screams confident, essentially announcing that she is in cahoots with a power of the universe, that she has sway to give someone their just desserts if they wrong her or someone she cares about. And this is actually an important step, because it solidifies her own power, rather than placing herself in a submissive position to the new relationship. She is an equal in a situation where she wants to be equal, no longer wordless or struggling to find her step. The metaphors are also not as forced in this song. It flows with ease and announces her return. And so then, the relationship can grow and blossom with ease, and turn into something simple and refined, the type of love that she's wanted all the way back in the early days of her career in Sweet Nothing. They said the end is coming, everyone's up to something, I found myself around and onto your sweet nothing, outside they push and shoving, you're in the kitchen humming, all that you ever wanted from me was sweet nothing. This is the first song in the album that really doesn't have too many different reads. There's no complex metaphor, no deeply textured meaning, layered ideas that bend what should be a straightforward pop song into puzzled tangles of abstraction. This is, on all levels, a song about the comfort one gains from a partner that supports and protects you. The love found before has latched and spread its roots deep. Now, as the world is seemingly falling apart around them, outside push and shoving, or the end is coming, they can take solace in each other, 
The title of the song itself is a play on the phrase sweet nothings, a term used most commonly to describe the words shared softly between two lovers. Typically, it's used in the context of a sexual situation, but here, Taylor is letting that phrase soften against the dramatic scenes she had to deal with before, the introspection of the media, the heightening of every little thing into an idea that instead shows the lack of expectation between them. The easy love. The song's sound is even easygoing through the whole thing. A song that starts and ends the same, going on for quite a long time, describing this idea that the relationship feels like and maybe has been feeling this good for a long time, and will continue to into the future. And in the wake of this feeling, finally, we enter into the last song on the album, the final rap of everything that came before in Mastermind. You see all the wisest women had to do it this way Cause we were born to be the pawn and every lover's kid for all intents and purposes, this song, from the beginning to very nearly the end, is about how Taylor ended up snaring someone she was attracted to into falling in love with her through a carefully aligned set of circumstances that she, well, masterminded. I laid the groundwork, and just like clockwork, the dominoes cascaded in a line. But as the song progresses, we start to see cracks in this facade, small hints that she is putting up a bluff, a fake image that she was in control of the situation, almost in an attempt to assert herself on top of the relationship rather than equal as before. And isn't it just a little strange that all of this journey occurred, fighting her battles and finally winning true love in the end, to then just go and say it was all designed? That all of this was just a setup. It feels unlikely, and well, that's because it is. This wasn't masterminded. She even states in the bridge that this is the first time I've felt the need to confess, bringing to light what she describes as her cryptic and Machiavellian nature, this scheming quality she said that has been part of her personality from the beginning of the album. But needing to confess seems out of place. If it worked, what's the benefit? Unless there was no plan, there was no success. And in fact, we see this obviously in the slight change to the last chorus. None of it was accidental in the first night that you saw me Nothing was gonna stop me I laid the groundwork and then saw a white smirk on your face You knew the entire time You knew that I'm a mastermind And now you're mine You knew the entire time Yeah, all you did was smile the relationship ended up happening not because she tricked him, but because they both wanted to be with each other in the end. And as such, in the end, she ends up accepting this position, calling herself a mastermind in a new sense. In the sense that she let herself work out her problems and allow herself the space to open up to a worthwhile love, despite everything that had happened to her in the past. That's why the album art is the way that it is, a mostly white canvas with a picture of a thoughtful and somewhat considering Taylor in a darker lit room staring at a lit lighter. The song titles and album names sit on the front cover, but her name doesn't. There's a tension in the image, a worry that this may be an obituary of sorts, a bit of a clean slate to scorch the earth and reset. But instead, that blank slate serves a different type of reset, one allowing her to move on from her past, to let go of the media nonsense and focus on the things that really matter to her, the love she feels and has in her current relationship, one reportedly having gone on for a few years now. This album is here to start over, to let 
let go of those things that haunted her Midnights in the past. And so, that's really all there is. Midnights is an album that sees Taylor on a hero's journey, one about allowing herself the space to grow out of the habits of her past, out of the attention she was giving things that didn't matter. The media, the haters, her exes, an opening to a love that felt too strong at first, but feels equal and easy now. Nearly everyone has things from their past that they regret or keep them up at night. Things that only show up on random nights when your mind skips to thoughts of your mortality, or the time you've lost or wasted, and the time you have left. And the important thing in this album is that she does not find a way through these perfectly. She waffles, she gets confused, she is reluctant and angry, and sometimes even at a loss for words. In a way, it serves as a relatable blueprint to approaching your demons and ghosts imperfectly and finding a way to find your confidence and battle through them. To find the parts of yourself that you don't like or the things that you hate in your history and look at them in a new way. Finding some way now to change and prevent yourself from feeling this way in the future. After all, sometimes the best remedy for our present and the best track for our future is to stare down ourselves in the past and either forgive or forget them. Your past does not define you unless you let it, and love is out there for everyone if you just give yourself a chance. If Taylor Swift, heartbreak extraordinaire, at least according to the tabloids, can do it, so can you. Hey everyone, we just got done doing the breakdown of Midnight's by Taylor Swift. And as you could probably tell by the runtime, unless this ends up being a little bit longer than I was expecting, this episode probably doesn't have a conversation section at the end. And you would be right. I was planning on having a section at this point, but that fell through. And upon discovering the album and reading the album and theorizing everything about it, and then also reading about the connections that this album has to other albums, I believe that in the future, it would be more prudent to have a bigger conversation about Taylor Swift and her influences and her thematic ideas throughout her her catalog rather than just Midnight's. So I will be planning to try and do something like that in the future. Hopefully it comes to fruition. I don't have enough knowledge or information to look at the totality of everything that's been said about this album and condense it here. So I would implore you to go search that stuff out, but I'm hoping to have a conversation about that in the future on the podcast and try and break down some of these ideas that have carried over since 2008. For what it's worth, this album is incredibly textured and a lot deeper than I was expecting to the point where this script to me felt like one of the messiest. It was one of the hardest to write and one of the most difficult in terms of finding an actual clear idea that carried over through the entire album. Because everything that she writes, being such a prolific writer and writing things that resonate with people for such a long time, she's gotten very good at abstract metaphors that 
feel like they could be talking about many different things at once. And the absolute density with which she puts those ideas into her music is almost unparalleled and is something that was very difficult to not want to talk about everything that was in there. I had to cut out so much theorizing in order to make this at all a reasonable length and get it done in time. So hopefully we'll be able to re-explore this in the future. But the main takeaway I want people to come out from this is there is something worthwhile to almost every piece of music out there, especially the things that are popular. Taylor Swift is an intensely popular writer for good reason. People don't tend to like things in the number that they like things like Taylor Swift if it were bad. And so I would really urge you to check this album out and maybe check out more of her stuff with new eyes and a new perspective on what exactly she may be attempting to evoke with her music and attempting to explore with the things that she talks about. And while you're at it, you might as well have a fun time because a lot of these songs are incredibly fun. But I think with all of that being said, I don't really have a whole lot more to say at this point. So I wanted to thank you all for joining me on this week's episode of Throughline with Taylor Swift's Midnights. You can reach out to us on basically any social media at AJ Throughline. Tell us how what you thought about this episode in particular and tell us what albums you want us to cover in the future. We are always looking for suggestions and we're always looking for feedback to tell us how to make this show better for everyone. But for now, I'm going to let you all go and I hope to see you next time on Throughline in two weeks. And remember everyone, the only journey that matters is your own. So make the most of it and allow yourself the space to change into something you'll be proud of in the future. As long as you live, you still have time. Thank you so much for listening. (laughs) 